Welcome to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, where we help business leaders and individual contributors with actionable insights to hit their number and figure out the nuances of truly operating a business globally today, squeezing the essence of the lessons learned from the planet's top tech leaders. This is your guide to joining the fast track to global market scaling. So on today's show, we're joined by Arna Alibert, who is the managing partner of Amavi Capital, who are trailblazers in the prop tech sector. They're an independent investment vehicle with the European network established to support leading the most promising scale of uh, active companies in the prop tech industry. So very much a unique space that was uh, certainly new for us on the show and something very keen to explore together. So welcome to the uh, show today, Arna. Thanks for having me, Ross. Great to be here. Great. Well, look, let's kick off. Um, tell us a little bit about your career. We've had um, investment folks on the, you know, PE and VC guys on the show before. This is a unique um, kind of uh, play in that space. Um, but I suppose before we get to that, let's talk about what, what, stages do you take and steps do you take in your career to get you into this space? How did you land where you are? Maybe just take us through your, you know, formative education, your, your experience and how you got to where you are and the decisions you took at, at those inflection points to get to get to get to your place now, if you'd share. Yeah, sure. That's, that's a good question. Um, if I if I take a few step uh, steps back, uh, I studied applied economics, uh, did the business school in Belgium. I was very much interested into the real estate sector. So really wanted to do something with that. And why was that? Because what I like about real estate is that you really can create things while having a huge impact on, on the daily life because you create things that are built to last. And I love that, that you can create and let's say 10 or 20 years later, you pass by with your kids and you say, hey, that has created that. I like that idea. Um, so I started off um, starting an office for a consultancy firm here in Belgium. They had an office in Antwerp and in Belgium. They wanted to start, start an office in Ghent. I did that for them for two years. It was a real cool introduction to real estate, but I wanted to do more. And then I came into contact with the founder of a very newly founded company called ION, I-O-N, that's a Belgian a property developer. Um, and we just started off building that company together. And in about 10 years time, we grew to one of the largest property developers in Belgium. Uh, so one of the fastest growing companies for sure. Um, and it's just a proof that in this very conservative real estate space, you can really make the difference if you just do things differently by embracing technology, by embracing change, embracing new business ideas. And that's not common at all. Um, and we were very much interested into technology. Uh, mm -hmm. We saw that tech trend popping up, especially in the US about seven, eight years ago, um, which really makes the sector a lot more efficient and that's pretty necessary i think everybody who has into contact with real estate or construction in general um, really sees that this sector is hugely inefficient up to today and secondly we should also keep uh, an eye on the carbon footprint of that industry which is not really sustainable the way we build the way we operate buildings the way we source and and use the scarce uh, scarce land out there so that was my uh, let's say, um, vision to do something about this very conservative sector. And then we thought, can we invest with our single property development company into those rising 
prop tech companies, especially in Europe. And we, we immediately saw that this was not a way to move forward since we're, we're a development company. So investing with just one company in growing company or growth companies ties the companies to each other and you create some kind of interdependencies, which we don't think is beneficial to either sides. And secondly, since we want to have a huge impact, we immediately saw that you cannot have an impact with just one company on its own. So that's why the idea popped up of creating a PropTech fund. Mm. So a fund of investing into the PropTech scene, but this fund is funded by not just one company, but why by the whole ecosystem of real estate and construction. So we have property developers, property investors, uh, property managers, construction companies, suppliers to the construction industry, et cetera. And with this whole ecosystem represented into that fund and investing with the fund into the property sector, that's for us the real uh, way to have an impact. And on the same hand, on, 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 uh, by doing that, you also create a bridge and you bridge the gap between, let's say, the old school real estate and construction space on the one hand and that new school uh, prop tech space. Because we do see that there's a huge value, of course, in, in prop tech, but most of the prop tech companies out there today, they focus on the sector from a product approach. They bring up a great product, but it doesn't get adopted in the sector as soon as possible. And that's just because they don't speak the same language and they don't have any networks within that conservative space. And that's exactly the bridge we want to get. So give me some examples. Uh, I really liked what you said there about bringing a disruptive set of technologies to a very conservative space tradition. Um, talk to me about some examples about that and maybe some resistance that you've seen in the marketplace and who's being rewarded and who's being punished maybe for that resistance if that makes sense yeah that's that's a good question um just to take again one step back we don't think that prop tech should be disrupting the real estate and construction sector i think some models can disrupt the sector but it's morally meant as a complementary model to make the existing incumbents more efficient and mm. more future proof that's basically the idea of 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 prop tech so if you compare it to FinTech, for instance, they, they offered an alternative to the existing financial institutions, which sure. is not the case in PropTech here. Mm. So we're not really disrupting anyone. Of course, what is the biggest disruption to me is that if you're a real estate player today and you don't adopt or you don't uh, come along in this tech trend, then you will be disrupted. But the PropTech movement in itself is not disruptive to, uh, to, to the sector. And just to make it a little more concrete, um, we have defined five categories into the whole built world value chain because PropTech to us is about this whole value chain. It's not focused on just, let's say, property developers or real estate brokers or property managers, it's the whole value chain. And so the first bucket that we see is, is about finance and invest. So it's about finding um, the right investments into the huge market by applying data. And mm. it's all a big data game right now. We're still in that real estate space, more of, let's say, a gut feeling sector. So we take huge decisions based on our gut feeling, but there's still a lot of data out there. The issue is, though, that the data is, the data is scattered in different sources, different formats, etc. So you have to extract the data from the different sources, aggregate the data, and that's the only way to get insights into that. So that, that's one very important vertical is getting that data game up and running. So um, I see that being hugely advantageous. Um, you've probably heard, we're, we're based in Ireland here, you've probably heard about the Irish property boom and then the subsequent crash. And one of the 
things that really struck me about what had happened there. There was a couple of different factors. Obviously, we had a very strong economy in the late 90s and early 2000s, and we joined the euro currency when the two big major players, Germany and France, uh, their economy wasn't so hot and they needed to lower interest rates. And we then subsequently rose our interest rate. Sorry, we needed higher interest rates and we got lower interest rates. And we had this second false boom in the early 2000s. So that was definitely a huge factor. But one of the major other factors, I would say, is a lack of demography information, meaning that they didn't look at the demography of society um, when planning houses. So there was a phrase coined by one of our economists, David McWilliams, saying ghost estates. And what he meant by that was we, would, we weren't making decisions on where we would build houses based on where the need was. We were building houses where we thought we could build houses and we were building however many houses we thought we could build at the time. Exactly. And just to give you an idea of some of the scale there, um, you know, our country is just just under just under five million people, uh, we were building um, 90, uh, 96 thousand houses. I think at the peak of the boom, and at the bottom of the crash, we were building eight thousand. So that gives you an idea of scale of of how much. And now the problem we have is that we have a massive um, uh, faults. Uh, we have a massive uh, demand for housing, but a, but a lack of supply. And COVID has impacted that as well because. People weren't building, construction was off for a good chunk of six months over the last year and a half and meant that there was further delay in stocks. I mean, they're talking about needing, um, you know, 200 houses, 200,000 in the next two years. And we're supposed to need, you know, 35,000 a year. And now that's crazy now. It's gone even more. So I'm really curious to know, like, because I think this would benefit at a very, very much at a state and a government level hugely. How do you feed that data into those decision-making uh, processes at the very, is that, this, is that the starting point, I suppose, is really my question, or does it start even higher up than that, as in what is society gonna look like in 10 or 20 years or 50 years time? H how do you use the data really is my bigger question. Yeah, that's a good question, but it starts, of course, with identifying the, the, the potential data sources, and that's, that's still an issue today. So a lot of developers, just don't look, as you, as you just said, a very valid point. They don't look at the demographic data, the interesting opportunities, where to develop what kind of product, which is, of course, the basis, the basis of, of, of a healthy company is looking at your market. What does the market request? And now this is done just through, through intermediates, uh, just giving a call to a local broker. Okay, what's, what's the need in the market? But there's a lot of very quantitative data that should be used more, uh, more um, to really define your, your key product. And just to answer your question, um, we see very interesting models popping up um, within real estate, but not coming from the real estate sector itself, but coming from tech giants, companies like Google, Amazon, um, Facebook, okay. they all enter that real estate and construction space, but of course with a data-driven approach. So we've seen the example of Google uh, developing a whole neighborhood in, in Toronto, in Canada, um, and they offer housing at a discounted price, but they just use the data of the occupier. And that data is of course worth a lot of money and that they know very well. And that will be the huge disruption to real estate is that these companies, these data-driven and customer-oriented companies enter the sector. That's the real one. Wow, okay. <laughs> so now you've got thinking. <laughs> So I, I have a Google Assistant behind me here. Um, I, I, uh, 
I switch it off when we record podcasts because I don't want my front doorbell going. I don't want, you know, my kids uh, playing on it, etc. But um, I have them in numerous rooms in my house and I'm fairly certain they're listening to me. On a, it is listening to me, right? I know that. But I'm curious to know, like, what other data is Google capturing in those those houses in Toronto? I don't know the exact details. I think no, no one actually knows, but it's all about the daily routines that people have that can that can bring you a lot of value to let's say um, promote um, really specific things. So let's let's do let's, let's say one example. You get up in the morning at seven a.m. Google knows that you get up at seven. You take your breakfast. You know they know what kind of breakfast you take. They know that at eight o'clock you jump in the metro towards your 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 work, etc. etc. They know exactly your daily routine. So advertisements can be made perfectly for you. It's like a tailor-made advertising and the hit ratio is of course a lot higher because they exactly know who you are and what you like. And it's, it's frightening if you think about it, but just, it's just reality that's already happening right now. You don't need to have intrusive uh, IoT solutions into your house, but it, of course it, it adds data to what they already know. Yeah, it's, it's funny because Google does, I have a Google display in my kitchen counter and it tells me like, what are the, f- the five most common things that I ask it? Yeah, it's usually things like, how long is my trip to drop my school, my kids to school? And exactly. um, will it rain today is a big one. You know, do the kids need coats and do I need a coat before we go out the door? Um, what are the other ones? Playing particular music as well, that kind of stuff. That's interesting. And the stuff uh, you order online, interesting. And I wonder if... They- Sure. Sure, that's true. And it, it also what it does as well is it'll read your Gmail and it'll figure out that, hey, there's an Amazon package coming today, um, you know, because that's what it says in your email. And I've read it ahead of time. It'll also know when you're doing flights because your flight tickets are in your email and it'll go, oh, by the way, I see you're heading to London this weekend or whatever the case may be. Yeah, OK, that's frightening. So talk to me about. Um, so, so that's the that's the top of the funnel, I suppose, from a demand perspective. Talk to me about technology companies in what I would call the, the, the middle of the funnel, right? So the actual um, construction build process itself. Yep. You talked about disruption, but also making the market more efficient, which is what one of the things I'm very passionate about. So talk to me about, we, we've had folks on where they have, you know, giving uh, people on site iPads, submitting documentation in a very digital way, transforming companies um, from that perspective. What sort of... Um, shifts are you seeing in making that market and that build process more efficient? Yeah. Well, if you look at the construction market itself, that's what we call contact construction tech. Um, mm-hmm. we, we aim at two, let's say, strategies in parallel. We look for disruptive ideas. So in construction tech, you really see disruptive ideas. But at the same time, we look at strategies for, let's say, reaping the quick wins as well. So not, not just only focusing on disruptive ideas because construction is a very slow sector. So this will not happen within one year, two years, maybe not even within three years. Uh, but that's why, meanwhile, we also focus on the quick wins. Disruptive ideas could be like what we call, for instance, prefab construction. What is the biggest pain point to us in construction is that there's lack of standardization. Whenever an architect draws his, his drawing for a new building, he starts off with a blank page. And there's mm-hmm. very few standardization of, for instance, standard grid in a regular uh, building. So what we see in prefab is that we've invested in a company, by the way, in the Netherlands, 
and they design mm -hmm. building blocks. See it as, as a giant Lego. And with these building blocks, standard blocks from let's say nine up to nine of, uh, up to four meters. Um, and with these blocks, they can design entire buildings. So it's not just single family houses, but let's say large office buildings, large multifamily residences. And then when the building is designed, of course you can make the outside facade whatever you want. So it, the buildings don't have to look the same, but they're built up in the same way. And what is, what is interesting then is that those building blocks are not made on the building site, but they're made in a factory. Just look at it as a car manufacturer. It's really a very controlled standardized process. At the end of the factory, you just have these modules, put them on a, on a truck, and in a few days, you can assemble a whole building on the building site. And that's one way to control that process. So you have a higher quality, you have lower costs since you have, you have no rework. That's one of the largest cost drivers on the building site, rework and, and errors, manual errors. Um, mm. And it's a lot quicker. It's a lot more sustainable, especially if you apply other building materials like wood. It's very easy to do that in wood, like um, CLT is cross laminated timber is some kind of wood. And that's really the way to move forward in construction. Because as you just said, we have a huge need for housing in the near future, if you look at it on a global scale. Mm. So if we keep on building the same way we do right now, we already have an issue, let alone that we have to multiply the need for housing uh, in the coming years. So sure. that, that's why it's the time is now to adapt that, that construction process. So that's disruptive. On the other hand, um, quick wins we see in efficiency increases on the building site, and there are numerous potential efficiency increases. And again, we think it's all about, it starts with data capturing on the building site. So seeing your flows on the building site, which supplier is coming to the building site, one with, when, with kind of, which kind of materials, et cetera. What are your workers doing? Are they wearing their safety gear? Um, and, and that's just one way to analyze the building site and then you can start optimizing there already is an issue because not a lot of construction companies analyze how the building sites operate. Um, and we see very interesting companies popping up, but it's not an easy sector to, to, um, to let's say, to digitize because we're talking about the real dinosaurs here. Okay. These are very large companies and they have been doing that the way they do for the last 50 years. So why innovate? And that's, that's mainly the, the biggest burden we see in construction tech. Um, and I can imagine they will they will be uh, punished by the market. I suppose they will be uh, seeing lack of growth, etc. And um, yeah, I know I, I know the mentality you're, you're certainly speaking of. And, and I think you know the market will decide ultimately who grows at whatever rate and, and will be rewarded. I think that's very very important. Um, I'm curious to know a um, couple of things. So for me, uh, we work. Um, in recruiting um, hugely in the digital um, economy. And we do a lot of work in relocating people into Ireland and do a lot of work in country, et cetera. Um, and that has been, you know, we, we've been fortunate in a lot of ways that a lot of people have been digital natives and digital nomads and they haven't had to um, compromise uh, their, their hiring hasn't slowed, but similarly, there's a reluctance to move country because of um, travel and COVID and things of that nature. Um, but, but what I'm really getting at here is, um, and we work with clients where they have no offices whatsoever, they work entirely remotely. What's your sense of 
the new normal after COVID, particularly in the commercial real estate sector? And what's the requirement going to be for um, office space? Um, and then the second part of my question is, do you feel that governments will react adequately and compromise on planning regulations around live work units? So in certain countries in Europe, um, the governments have been very resistant to change in the way that people are living. They want you to have a standardized single family home or an apartment, and they really don't have any imagination beyond this. I see, and they've approved one or two interesting projects. And what I'm talking about is, projects where you've got a collection of people living together and sharing facilities and then also having a massive common area where work can be done and um, so i'm curious to know what's your sense of mass commercial real estate going forward because you're seeing banks are dwindling in terms of branch locations you're seeing offices are scaling down if all their employees showed up to the office in one go they'd have a problem they couldn't fit them what's your sense of that and what's your sense of what the new normal in terms of your living and your working relationship will look like going forward again a good question i think there has been a lot said about the impact of COVID. it's very hard to predict but mm -hmm. what we see in the market is that COVID has I think fundamentally change not much. It is an accelerator of the trends that were already out there, but that now really pop up very rapidly on, on the market. And one trend that we already saw uh, for quite a while is this demand for flexibility in general. And this is the case in residential, and this is also the case in commercial property. And this is now definitely the case post COVID is that also office uh, tenants Mm -hmm. won't sign a lease for nine or 15 years fixed. So they ask flexibility as well. Um, that's for sure. In mm -hmm. terms of surface, I think indeed we can all agree that the average surface of an office building per occupier will go down because mm -hmm. they all have hybrid workspaces. So yeah. I think that the time that everybody is in the office from nine to five all the time, I think that that's gone. So we'll move towards more hybrid spaces. Some will work a few days from home, some will work a few days from other hubs, but mm -hmm. not all centralized at the same time in the same building. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that there's no need for offices anymore. On the contrary, I think the need for offices is even higher because you still need that physical meeting point. And to me, that is the new, between brackets, the new function of an office. It's more of a central hub. It's more of a meeting point. People yeah. get together, collaborate, um, negotiate, inspire each other and then maybe re retreat again to your hybrid working spaces. And that's, I think, again, nothing new, but you have been seeing that accelerated very rapidly the last couple of months and, and year. And um, in terms of residential, indeed you see uh, the need for mixed functions in, an, in, a general in a general project for sure. And you also see that more in detail that a lot of um, residents now ask for extra space in their home that they can have a private office to work from home as well. So that's an immediately an immediate need that you see in a residential uh, property market. Um, on the regulation perspective, I don't think they will change a lot in the short term because they're not that, um, let's say, easy to change the course yeah. in terms of regulation. Um, but if there's something needs to be changed, I think it will be more again towards this more mixed use urban developments. 
where you have a mix of functions and you can have a mix of functions over time as well. So it shouldn't always be one office building, one residential building, and let's say a parking uh, underneath, but that should be more flexibly used throughout time as well. But that's not, that's, of course, that's easier said than done because you still have regulatory uh, framework and a legal framework, but that is the demand from the market at least that space can be used flexibly over time and in different functions. Okay, and do, do you feel that, you know, with the, the, the access to the data um, that you will get will help to steer government decision-making at a, at a state level, even at an EU parliamentary level? But what, what's your sense for that? Yeah, I believe so. And I think especially the European Union is, is quite open to that. That's for sure. But you still have a giant institutional body that needs to be very quickly uh, changed uh, ch or changed its, its course. And that might be a difficult one. But I think they have an eye on what the market really asks for. So I think they will adapt in time, but it's very hard to, uh, to give my uh, real insights in that. Okay, okay. Tell us about a particular investment uh, or a series of investments that you're really passionate about right now that you're just exciting, that's just completely game-changing. Interesting one. Um, well, we have a few. Um, an interesting one is in a company in which we invested in, in Finland, and it's called G-Builder. And they tackle the need for customer experience on the one hand, because that's just one huge pain point in the industry. Mm -hmm. That just as an anecdote, when buying, uh, let's say, a, a 300k thousand or 300k euro apartment, you don't get any customer experience. And when you buy a, a 10 euro pizza, just to give an idea, then you get an experience. You know what exactly is out there from all the different choices. You can order it online. You know where your delivery is at, etc. So what they did is they made a converter to convert a, a classic 2D plan into a 3D model. So for, from a whole building based on BIM. So building information modeling. And what is interesting that the future buyer can see its future apartment or any future apartment in that building in 3D, can walk through, can look around, can even look out the windows and we'll see what the view will be. And then the journey starts. Within that apartment, they can configure the whole house or apartment. They can choose the flooring, choose the kitchen, choose, choose the doors, choose the doorknobs, etc. And you also see the price impact from their choices. And that's interesting because that's like a car configurator for a home. We all thought that configuring a car without even driving it would never be possible. But that is what is happening today. When you bought a Tesla, even when you will start buying a Volvo soon, you won't be able to drive that car. You just configure that online and within a couple of months, you get it. So I'm not saying that people will buy real estate fully online. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, it will be again, a hybrid model, I think. You go to the showroom to choose your kitchen, choose your floor, etc. But then, at your own comfort, in your own comfort zone, at the sofa, let's say with a glass of wine, you will start configuring your home. And then you have these commercial guidelines, like if you buy on Amazon and you pick one item, the system says, hey, by the way, people who pick that item also chose that item. And that's how, of course, you can steer that, that, that flow towards a, a bigger purchase. But that's not the end of the journey. That's the customer front end part, but then the customer choices that have been made are also pushed towards the building site. 
So the suppliers know that they need that kind of floor by that kind of timing and that type of apartment, et cetera. Also the contractor knows when they have to install that, that appliance, et cetera. And then that's the fourth step then, when managing that building, you know the exact finishing materials that, that have been chosen, that have been installed. So when there's a defect in the flooring, defect in the kitchen cabinets or whatever, you know the exact material used. So by re for replacing that kind of material, you immediately know what is in there because you might have 100 apartments with 100 different choices being made. So that's a really interesting model to have a common language throughout the different silos. And that is still what real estate is up to today, different silos. The designer speaks its own designer language. The developer speaks, speaks a developer language and it's not the same language compared to, for instance, the asset manager, property manager of the property. And that's where we need to find that common thread, that common language, and that might be a BIM model. Because you gather data throughout the process and mm -hmm. every step further in the process, use that data. And that's exactly how it needs to be done. So interesting company. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think we will get to that level. I think I can see that already happening. And, you know, I'm, I, during COVID, um, we saw houses being sold without a viewing because exactly. viewing were, were not allowed. They just were not allowed. And, um, you know, they're going for 70, 80 K over the asking price because people are climbing over each other to, to bid on them. Um, and if the sale fell through, sometimes they would just relist at the last price it left at and keep going. And, 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 and they were just viewing them online. And some of them, Depends on the, you know, we have a aggregator uh, website, which takes in all the real estate agents into one place yep. and use them. But you have to, you submit based on photographs you've taken and you can see the crappier ones with the experience being a handful of photos and you can see the better ones, which have virtual 3D tours and, you know, walkthroughs and things of that nature. And I think that's the way that it's going to go. Um, but you'll be able to view and, and that would be particularly relevant if you're moving country, for example, you know, you don't need to do that. And you, you see this now very much at the higher end of the real estate market in the into the millions of euro properties where they're not being bought necessarily by local people. They're being bought by people who have many homes throughout the, the world and they're coming in from the Middle East and and so on in Asia and they're viewing them online. But the real estate agent is investing considerably in the um photography, I suppose, to, to get those sold and they're selling and they're selling really, really quickly. And that's okay. an, interesting, an interesting remark. Sorry to interrupt, Ross, yeah, but one of the key drivers of PropTech to us is also a very, um, let's say, rapidly evolving demand in the market because we see this younger generation popping up as real estate mm. users, buyers, renters, whatever. They have other expectations than the previous generation. They get life experiences in pretty every single uh, sector except real estate so for them that's that's really a shock when they enter real estate that they are <laughs> not treated in the same way as they are in the other sectors so real estate companies really have to adapt to that demand by using technology yeah that's a great point actually i never thought about it that way and i, I wonder about my own children as to what their expectations will be and um, you know and i see this shift because they come down every morning they get dressed but they put on youtube they they, they exactly. talk to google they ask google what they want to do and you know they get frustrated and they shout at google when it doesn't do exactly what it is they're looking to to, to to achieve and watch that particular day so you know i think it's phenomenal i think one of the kind of just um 
on a small tangent, one, one of the, um, I suppose, disadvantages of Google to an extent is it's removed pub chat speculation. And what I mean by that is uh, myself and maybe my father-in-law or whatever, sitting up at the bar and having a drink and having a discussion about, well, I think that, and I think this, and statistically, I think it's this number or whatever. Those conversations have been wiped out because you can just Google it and actually confirm. And uh, I kind of like, some ways the, the kind of, um, uh, the demon in me is like, kind of like, well, I'm going to prove them wrong and here it is in black and white, you know, and I kind of like that catching people out almost in some respects. Um, but it's kind of funny because it's killed that conversation in society. You know, you can no longer be an authority, a pub authority on a particular subject when you never were in the first place. You're being found out, right? You know. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Um, so shifting gears here a small bit, um, and I think I know the answer to this. Uh, what do you feel is your superpower in this space? Like when you look at businesses, I think you find broken parts and you want to fix them. And you look at people who are uh, fixing a problem um, that, that's become broken or making it more efficient. But what for you would you define as your superpower? In PropTech specifically? And, and what we do in PropTech or more generally speaking? Well, let's do both. PropTech first. Uh, and PropTech, to me, what are, what are the, the biggest broken pieces, to put it like that, is that there's one, there's a huge, um, let's say, fragmentation in European PropTech companies today. So when, when we first looked at the, at the PropTech scene, we looked at Belgium, oh, interesting, we saw interesting companies, we go, oh, cool, let's dive deeper. And then when we just crossed border, we saw like practic practically the same companies in the Netherlands and the same in, in Germany and the same in France. So you really have to have that pan-European scope to really analyze the best companies. I think that's the exact opportunity and, and the value add that we could bring is trying to um, push consolidation forward into that fragmented PropTech sector in, in Europe. And what I mean with that is that we see, again, scattered PropTech solutions, but the, let's say, the users of the PropTech solution, they don't want scattered solutions. They want holistic approaches. So what we see is that we see more platforms popping up right now, very recently only, and they have cross-border activities. So not just active in Belgium, but also in the whole Benelux, maybe in France and Germany as well. And they focus not just on a single problem within the value chain, but they have a broader product offering. And that's exactly what the market needs. So we want to be the driver into that consolidation trend. Um, that's one. And second, again, within PropTech is what I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation is being that bridge between the conventional real estate and they speak language A and you have that new school PropTech space and they speak language B, which is completely different from language A. So we try to be the translator and the link between those two sectors because they, they very much need each other. Because if the, the old school sector doesn't adapt to tech, they, they will be gone in a few years. And if the tech sector doesn't seem to find that old school real estate space, they don't have a market. So that's that's the link we wanna the link we wanna be. From a broader perspective, Ross, um, mm. what really gives me energy is being challenged by all those innovative ideas I mm. see every day. Uh, so that's I think um, a very thankful job to do as a VC, on the one hand. And I think what I'm best at, I'm not a pure tech guy. I'm not a pure VC. I try to keep the holistic overview and linking ideas from one subsector to another and connecting people to really find the best team 
the best approach in a market. And that's what I like is keeping that helicopter view and let's say putting the puzzle together. So I'm not an expert in either domains of the, of the ones we discussed here today, but I like to keep that overview. That's, that's my basic goal. Love that. If that makes sense. If that makes sense. Love, no, it does. It makes complete sense. Um, and that's kind of what I suspected and you've articulated it beautifully there. So uh, thank you for that. I suppose as we round the corner here and wrap up um, the show, um, what are your predictions for the future? I mean, what are you, when you look back at your career, um, what would you have hoped to achieve and say, wow, I really made an impact there? And where, where do you see us in 50 years time in terms of our, our lives and the impact real estate's going to have on us? Wow, difficult one. <laughs> um, I think again, and we touched upon this, but the carbon footprint that the sector has today is really to be ashamed from. Um, so what I hope to have is next to the efficiency increases that we try to have with PropTech, we really would like to have this positive sustainable impact because we all want our children to live in the same qualitative world as we do today, but we have to open our eyes that this is not possible with doing the same things as we do right now. Sure. So, sure. and when we look at we all want to, want, to, want to live in a qualitative world, but we don't want to change our daily patterns. And if there's one sector that has a huge impact with just minor efficiency tweaks, then it's construction and real estate, because it's about 40% of the, of the, um, of the uh, greenhouse gas emissions that come from that single industry. So that's actually my larger goal is putting that sector back on track to guarantee that we still can have, let's say, a qualitative world for the next generations, which also includes my children and my grandchildren. Of course. That's of course. basically the idea. Fantastic. Fantastic. Very, very well put. Well, look, I really want to thank you for appearing on the show today. You've added a ton of value and insights, particularly um, very keen to see how the younger generation pan out in this evolving space. Um, with a new way of living, um, particularly with the accelerator of COVID, catalyst of COVID, very much akin to that point and it really hit home. So look, thank you again for appearing on the show and we look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Thank you very much, Ross. You've been listening to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, designed for both established and aspiring career-focused tech rock stars, as well as helping leadership figure out how to speak global in today's multicultural world. For further details, check out sf-talent.com.